Jiminy Crickets. Jiminy Cricket is the name. I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow. Always getting in wrong for singing my song. A merry old soul am I. Jiminy Cricket is the name. I'll be hanging around this evening. I'll be tipping my hat and telling you that Jiminy Cricket is the name. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 89 of Jiminy Crickets. How are you doing, Ruth? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And today, we're going to talk about two lands. One is in Disneyland in California. The other one is at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. And what they have in common? They're both squares. We're going to talk about New Orleans Square and Liberty Square. So we're going very Squaresville today. (laughs) (laughs) We're just a couple of squares anyways. Yes, we are Disney Squares. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But before we get to our main topic, we wanted to mention our new Facebook page. It's a special group that we set up just for the Jiminy Crickets podcast. If you do a search under Jiminy Cricket's podcast on Facebook, you will find our group. And it's, by the way, Jiminy Cricket's exclamation point podcast. And if you send us a request to join, we'll do some background checking on your Facebook behaviors. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, we don't want uh, people who are not legitimate Disney fans or, you know, people trying to sell things and that sort of thing in the group. So we'll do we'll do a little checking to make sure you're a Disney person. And we'll gladly add you to the group. It's a brand new group. We only have 74 members so far. We need more members, but it is brand new. And I'm just, we need to get the word out about it. Not a lot of people know about it yet, so... If you're interested in joining, just send a request to join and we'll be happy to add you to the group and we'll share ideas and you can comment on the episodes and if uh, you uh, don't object, we will read some of your comments on the show. And speaking of reading comments on the show, Ruth, we have some comments that we've received over the past few weeks from listeners, and uh, why don't we read a couple of them for everybody? Yes. So the first one we got was from Elmer Sagehorn, and he says, Thanks, Chris. Oh, before you say anything, I just have to give him a huge shout-out because he's always been very supportive. He's always commenting on my Facebook posts and everything, and he he's a very nice person. I just have to say that up front because... He's very interactive with uh, everything I do on social media, so he's definitely a true cricketer. Well, then it's good we're mentioning him. Yes. Hi, Elmer. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Well, his comment says, Thanks, Chris, for giving a tribute to my favorite Disney animated flick, and he's referring to our Jungle Book episode. It is indeed 50 years old as of last October. Glad to see some Disney lovers paying tribute to this classic. The Disney company itself didn't do anything to pay tribute to it. Could have released the Disney Legacy soundtrack on it. 
missed an opportunity. Oh well, I am prejudiced because it is the first animated film I saw as a child. My grandma bought me the original LP they were selling in the lobby of the movie house. It is still my very favorite Disney animated film all these 50 years later. This 57-year-old thanks you, Chris, for your love of all things Disney. Well, you're welcome, Elmer, and thank you for all your support and well wishes over the years. We appreciate it. And we're glad that we brought back some memories for you of your favorite animated film. Definitely. And I totally mm -hmm. agree with him. They should have released the Disney Legacy soundtrack for Jungle Book as well. Oh, I know. I, Disney is really lately bad about recognizing its... I mean, they, Peter Pan, you know, we talked about that in our last episode. That came out... You know, that just celebrated its 65th anniversary. I, I saw, you know, like the D23 fan club will, you know, the official fan club Twitter account mm -hmm. will post something, you know, right. saying, hey, it's just, that's about all they do. Right. That is true. Yeah. That's not enough. This is a huge milestone. 65 years? That's yeah. huge. Yeah. I you know. can release a soundtrack, you know, with some like special songs and stuff. Yeah. Well, they kind of did that already. Well, I guess they didn't release it in the new Legacy collection, but honestly, it would probably be just the same thing they've already released in the past because they have they have released a lot of Peter Pan soundtrack stuff already. So I'm not that disappointed about that, but something, maybe commemorative merchandise, or mm -hmm. which they didn't have any for Jungle Book or Peter Pan... Right. I mean, they could actually make a profit on it if they, you know, promoted right. the anniversary. Disney is very well familiar with repackaging and rebranding exactly. things. So exactly. I don't know why they don't keep doing it. <laughs> I know. There's something should be mentioned about it. I don't know. I mean, Disney's in, in more recent years been really bad about celebrating their, their history I really feel it's a cultural thing that begins at the very top. If mm. Bob Iger was more interested in Disney history, the company would be more interested in Disney history. And I just always have had the sense that Bob Iger really doesn't care mm -hmm. about the past. He's all about, you know, what's going on now. Right. And he, you know, he reluctantly will do things based on the Disney legacy, and it's against his... It's like almost like you have to pull his arm to get anything like that done. That's just my... I mean, I have nothing to back that up. I'm just saying that I feel that way. I just get that sense from him. Right. That he's just like... When you see him give speeches at Disney events and stuff, he seems just so unenthusiastic about <laughs> it. It's like, I don't know, maybe he's that's just his personality or... And he actually is enthusiastic. But I mean, I remember, in you know, Michael Eisner doing those same things. And he was like, always talking up about Walt and mm -hmm. the, the legacy of the company. And he was always so enthusiastic about everything. Mm -hmm. Almost to the point of being sickening. <laughs> but uh, you go from one extreme to the other. Right. So it's kind of like, hmm. I don't know which is better. Right, <laughs> being, I don't know. Yeah. Being too enthusiastic or not enthusiastic enough. Anyway, I 
I agree with your assessment, Elmer, that Disney needs to do a little bit more for us uh, 40 and 50 year olds because there are a lot of people into Disney that are above the age of 25. Right. Um, and I seem to only cater the, to that younger demographic, which I feel is an oversight. Anyway, we have one more that we wanted to read from Maya Angela. Why don't you read that one, Ruth? So she starts out by saying, done, thanks for the info, because she joined our Facebook podcast group. Mm-hmm. And she says, great idea for comments and questions. The work you put into the podcast makes a difference in the depth of information you provide. It's noticeable. Thank you. Plus, you are honest even when it isn't favorable. Yeah, I'm not a pixie duster, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely into Disney, and I love Disney, but if there's something I see that I'm a, I don't agree with, I don't just pretend like it... I mean, I haven't swallowed the pill. I'm right. not... <laughs> I'm not. I I haven't had my brain programmed by Disney yet. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> if I see something I disagree with, I will call them out on it. But if I see something that I love and enjoy, I will also mention that. I'm. You know. I'm not all negative and I'm not all positive. I'm just me. And if I don't like something, I will say it. Um, I feel like there's a lot of podcasters and vloggers and YouTube people that they can only say, well, they kind of, to me, they fall into four camps. There's the people who don't know what the heck they're talking about. They have no idea of any Disney history, and they just say stuff that they shouldn't because people will take them as a reliable source and take their word as gospel and they're getting misinformation. There's those out there, there's plenty of those. And they have absolutely no sense of the history of the company. Everything's based on their impressions of how the company is today. And that brings me to my second category of people out there, that they focus only on the present and anything before Michael Eisner era, they totally disregard. Like, they're only interested in Disney from the Renaissance forward. And they have, they really know nothing about anything that came before all of that. There's those out there too. They don't give out misinformation, but all of their information is biased towards everything that's new being better and everything from the past being not important. Then there's the ones that. All they do is say how wonderful everything is, and they can never criticize Disney for anything, and they always try to spin everything into a positive, no matter what. And then there's our camp. We're lifetime Disney fans. We know a lot about the company and its history, and we're fascinated by the man himself, Walt Disney, and we know it's not about, you know, the Renaissance. And, I mean, we like that stuff, too, but we we're really into the true where this company really came from and I don't know that's just where I feel a connection with other Disney fans or people that are more in that camp so how do you feel about it Ruth? Oh yeah I definitely agree I mean 
You can't be a Disney fan without knowing how the company became what it is today. And that was all started by Walt. And you have yeah. to know these things. I mean, if you are a true Disney fan, you have to know. I mean, I'm not saying you have to know the ins and outs of Walt's life from, you know, the minute he was born to the minute he died. But you got to understand, like, the type of innovator that he was. You have to at least be interested in yeah. it, though. Yeah. Like, you might not know all of it, but... There's those that don't even, they're not interested in it. Right. Like, they're only interested in the, and I guess that's okay, but if that's where your passions lie, the more recent Disney stuff, that's fine, but I just, I don't feel a connection with, with those people. Mm-hmm. I feel more of a connection with people who, their favorite movie is Mary Poppins, not people whose favorite movie is Tron, The Legacy, or whatever, <laughs> you know. Who says that's their favorite movie? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that type of thing. Like, people who say the Marvel films are their favorite right. Disney movies. Right. Like, I'm not I'm not a kindred spirit right. with those people. But that's okay. I mean, I love the Marvel, but Ma- Mary Poppins is my favorite movie. I mean, yeah, that's okay, too. <laughs> I mean, my, I'm just saying there's room for everybody. Right. Right. I'm not saying you shouldn't be that way, except for the people who give out misinformation. That's right. not a good thing. Right. Who pretend like they know everything, but really don't, and they, you know, they just, they just open their mouth, and whatever comes out comes out. Um, they don't put any research or anything into. There's a lot of that out there, and it's really frustrating sometimes, because that's how rumors get started, and people that are gonna put themselves out there on youtube or in podcasts they really need to take responsibility and make sure that everything they say has been fact checked i mean it's really the right thing to do to not put misinformation out there that's that's been causing a lot of problems in a lot of different areas not just disney putting out misinformation has become a major issue Mm -hmm. um so Right. That's just my takeaways from what I've noticed lately in the Disney podcast slash blogging community. But uh, we have a lot to talk about this week. Two big full lands of history and attractions and different things to delve into. But before we get to that, we have a special announcement. Traveler's checks. Credit cards. Credit cards. Passport. Passport. Baggage tags. Baggage tags. Live it up. Do it all. Happy trip. Have a ball. All ashore, it's going ashore. Well, cricketeers, the Jiminy Crickets podcast is excited to announce an all-new partnership with Concierge Vacation Planners. Concierge is a Disney-only specialty vacation planning service. They don't just book your vacation, 
They walk beside you through the entire process, from analyzing and picking out the right dates to effectively utilizing your fast passes. They will help you with every detail. The amount of time that your personal vacation planner will spend with you, one-on-one, -on -one, planning out every stage of your Disney vacation, is amazing. Mike and his behind-the-scenes team do a phenomenal job, and we are excited to endorse Concierge for all the Disney travel planning needs of our Jiminy Crickets podcast listeners. So if you are starting the early planning process for your next Disney vacation, be it Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, or many of the other Disney locations available, why not give Concierge a call? They are an authorized Disney vacation planner, and here is the amazing part. They charge nothing for their services. You get the exact same pricing as if you called Disney yourself or booked through the Disney online portal. But in using concierge expertise and concierge level service, you have the added bonus of a personal Disney guru planner by your side. And I can't recommend them enough. You can check them out at www.concierge.com. That's www.concierz.com, like in mouse ears. You can also find them on all the social media platforms and link to them directly from my website, DisneyChris.com. Concierge is now the official Disney vacation planners of the Jiminy Crickets podcast and DisneyChris.com. And we hope you will check them out. Disneyland has always had a big river and a Mississippi sternwheeler. It seemed appropriate to create a new attraction at the bend of the river. And so Disneyland's New Orleans Square came into being. A New Orleans of a century ago when she was the gay Paris of the American frontier. In 1803, the United States wanted New Orleans for a port. In order to get it, we had to make a package deal with Napoleon. He insisted that we buy the peripheral area. So we threw in an extra million and ended up with 800,000 square miles. The Louisiana Purchase was probably the greatest real estate deal of all time. It included all of this territory from the Gulf to Canada. Total cost, $11 million. And by the way, Disneyland's New Orleans Square alone cost 15 million. But of course, a dollar went much further in those days. It was a gala day when we officially opened New Orleans Square. We had a real jubilee, Southern style. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about two of my favorite areas in the Disney parks and what they have in common is they're both squares New Orleans Square and Liberty Square so let's start with the land that came first out of those two New Orleans Square and believe it or not 
even though New Orleans Square opened in 1966, it really goes all the way back to the beginning of Disneyland. A lot of people don't realize this, but the original 1955 opening day Disneyland had a New Orleans street. And that section of Disneyland is actually still in the park to this day. It's one of the only remaining buildings that isn't on Main Street and isn't the castle that has remained pretty much intact as exactly what it looked like when the park opened. That little stretch of buildings that runs from Frontierland's entrance all the way around and back, looping back around to Adventureland again. That block of buildings right there, which on one side faces Frontierland, on the other side faces Adventureland. That's pretty much looks exactly how it looked in 1955. But the section of that stretch of buildings that was specifically deemed as New Orleans was the section that runs from the end of the Golden Horseshoe Review and lining up adjacent to the Rivers of America and ending right about where today you would see the River Bell Terrace restaurant. That little section right there was originally supposed to represent New Orleans. And if you look closely at those buildings, you can tell that they are sort of New Orleans inspired. Not nearly as elaborate as what eventually would become New Orleans Square a little bit further up the river. But you do see some wrought iron trellises and little details that kind of hint at the fact that, you know, there's balconies and different little elements that do, if you, if you know what you're looking for, you can squint your eyes and say, yeah, this could have been a New Orleans section at one time. Of course, they paint everything now in different color schemes to make it look more like a part of Frontierland, but it really doesn't really look like what you would generally think of as like an old west town as far as the architecture of those buildings so you could kind of tell that something's up there that doesn't quite match the rest of the frontier land like the area that goes from the entrance of Frontierland up to the golden horseshoe definitely has that old west ghost town type look to it but when you round the bend there, the buildings are a little fancier, a little, you know, more ornately detailed with the with the wrought iron trellises and things like that. And that was intentional because Walt really wanted to have a New Orleans area in his park from the very beginning because he had been to New Orleans a few times with his wife. He loved that part of the country and he loved Dixieland jazz music. So he wanted to have an area where it would be fitting to have Dixieland jazz. And um, that was uh, his reasoning for including that little area there. Originally, for the first uh, little stretch of time, there was a restaurant there called Casa de Fritos. And um, it only was there for a short while because they moved it over to where today you would find the Mexican restaurant Rancho del Zocalo. 
That's where they ended up moving Casa de Fritos, only after a few months after it being there, because Walt felt that he wanted something that more represented New Orleans or the Old South and that sort of thing. So that got moved, and instead they put in the Aunt Jemima Pancake House, which had kind of a Southern feel to it, of course. That is where today you would find the River Bell Terrace. That used to be the Aunt Jemima Pancake House. And a little bit further down towards uh, where the buildings meet up with the Golden Horseshoe was a barbecue restaurant called the Silver Banjo Barbecue. This was actually owned and operated by a famous Hollywood celebrity. Do you know who that is, Ruth? Don DeFore? Yes, and do you know what he was famous for? No, what is it, Chris? He was the next-door neighbor on the sitcom Ozzy and Harriet. He was called Thorny, (laughs) was his name. And if you think about Home Improvement, remember that sitcom with Tim Allen? Yes. And he had his neighbor, Wilson, Mm -hmm. that you never saw his face. Thorny is kind of the equivalent to Wilson. Only you did see Thorny's face. He didn't hide (laughs) behind a fence. But kind of that same idea. And so, I mean, Ozzy and Harriet in 1955 was a huge, you know, show on TV. It was one of the most popular shows on TV. So people knew who Thorny was. And if you were lucky, you would actually catch him working there. He would actually go down there and work there. And he would bring his kids. And they would just have the run of the park while he was cooking up barbecue how fun yeah so definitely the two restaurants there had a southern feel maybe not exactly new orleans but they were definitely what was going for a representation of the old south in this part of his frontier land and adjacent to this little stretch that was a new orleans street was a bandstand right on the river dock like it extended out over the river right adjacent to that new orleans section and he had an in-house dixieland band that performed that was you know it was disneyland's own dixieland group that played there virtually every day several times a day and they were called the straw hatters and they just played traditional new orleans dixieland jazz They also, interestingly, had a lady that was dressed like Aunt Jemima that would come out and visit with guests. She'd sometimes dance with the band. She'd do a little Dixieland dancing uh, with the Straw Hatters. On opening day, if you ever watch the Dateline Disneyland uh, opening day broadcast which i know is available in full on youtube and if you haven't you really should because it's fascinating but you'll see them uh showcasing this little section of the park and the firehouse five plus two were performing there on opening day so this obviously was walt's original new orleans section of disneyland so there was always a new orleans in disneyland from day one The area behind what was once called the Plantation House, which was a huge restaurant that sat right on the dock of the river as it turned around to go further up down the river, kind of 
near where Pirates of the Caribbean is today, but not in, you know, there, it was on the shores of the rivers of America. Like, there was a balcony that extended right, kind of how the Hungry Bear restaurant is situated today. Back then, if you wanted to get a good view of the boats passing and everything, you could eat there, and it was right on the shore of the rivers of America. And the building looked like a big southern plantation. But only on one side. Only on one side. <laughs> on the other, exactly. On the other side, it had kind of an adobe southwest look to it. Because you were transitioning from that area to the Indian village, which was further up the river. So it all had kind of a flow to it. A very specific flow. The beginning of Frontierland was the Old West. Then you had the New Orleans Old South section. And then you had kind of the Native American area further up the river. So all considered part of Frontierland at this point. But there were subsections within Frontierland with different themes. And... Uh, Behind the Plantation House restaurant, which served fried chicken that was really popular. In fact, when they first closed it, they set up a little stand near where it had been where they you could just walk up and get fried chicken because people were still asking for it at that point because it was so popular. But eventually that got phased out. Anyway, behind it was an area that they called Magnolia Park. And magnolia trees, of course, are a type of tree that it's from the south you know so this was also kind of an homage to the south this area kind of behind the plantation house where the plantation house sort of met up with that little new orleans street section there was actually a bridge that went over the rivers of america at that time and it was actually that waterway was connected to the jungle cruise river and you would go over a bridge to get from the New Orleans Street over to where the plantation house was because the water to the Jungle Cruise went right under you. So both bodies of water were connected at that time, which is interesting. So back there they had the original Disneyland bandstand, which was uh, first located in Town Square. Then before opening day, it got moved to next to the castle. And then a year later, it got moved to this area, which was kind of behind, right where the Jungle Cruise kind of met up with Frontierland, next to where the train tracks were. And it was a big bandstand uh, that they would have special concerts. The, the Mouseketeers would meet with guests there. They had a Christmas concert, which actually sort of led to the candlelight procession, the concerts that started there, they called it the Holiday Bowl. And they had robed choir singers, and after a year of that, they expanded it, and it became the um, candlelight processional, which we still have today. They had um, Christmas around the world there, where they had all the people that participated in the Christmas parade of many lands would put on uh, stage shows there showing their different cultures and everything. So, I mean, they kind of just used it as a venue for all sorts of different random things that they really had no other place to put these things on. And it was called, at that time, the Magnolia Bandstand. Um, eventually that got removed, too. 
But uh, anyway, Walt decided that he was going to add a different and new and improved New Orleans section to Disneyland. So around 1957, they were already planning for a New Orleans Square where it presently is located today, but it was designed on a much smaller scale. They would have left the Plantation House restaurant where it is, that would not have been removed, but behind it, they planned on building a, a bunch of buildings representing New Orleans, including a wax museum and a haunted house. Originally, the haunted house is going to be located kind of where the treehouse eventually ended up. That's where um, the first plan was for the haunted house. And the wax museum was going to be a walkthrough exhibit where you would see um, pirates. And sometimes it was called the thieves, the thieves market. On s some of the maps you'll see from back then, they actually showed this you could buy a souvenir map a lar a big souvenir map in the park back then and uh they actually didn't just show what was in the park at the time they showed coming attractions so this whole area was on that map as and it was marked as a coming attraction but it never got built that way because all of Walt's ideas kept growing and growing and growing and so in order to fit New Orleans Square in they were going to have to extend out the train tracks, fill in the connecting water between Frontierland and the Jungle Cruise, so get rid of that bridge and have two separate bodies of water, and they were going to have to get rid of the plantation house. So what happened in uh, 1962, Ruth? So in 1962, they decided to basically demolish most of that area that was that we described so like the magnolia park area and the bandstand and the plantation the plantation house. house yes they still kept the other restaurants um in the frontier land area and then they just built up one of those you know disney walls the famous mm -hmm. disney walls and they blocked yeah. off that whole entire area for construction and it stayed like that for years <laughs> yeah and at the same time they actually built the haunted mansion structure right i think that was complete in 1963 yeah and so they had a haunted house that didn't have a ride in it yet and they they moved the train tracks and moved the train station so that whole area that's still there today between where the Haunted Mansion is and where the train station, that was already completed as far as, you know, the outdoors of it. The, the attraction for the Haunted Mansion was not there yet, but that pretty much looked like it does today from 1963 going forward. But it was a section further down where Pirates is and where all the shops are and the French Quarter restaurant. That was all boarded up for until Walt got done with all of his World's Fair stuff because everything got put on hold because of the New York World's Fair. So if you ever see uh, overhead pictures of Disneyland between 1962 and 1966, you'll see just all this construction or, you know, all, all this emptiness going on in that little section. But you'll also notice the Haunted Mansion is there, and a lot of people get confused about that because the Haunted Mansion didn't, the attraction didn't open until 69. 
But the building was there in 63, which is kind of bizarre. Yeah, six years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so eventually the fair ended and they went ahead and started finishing up New Orleans Square, but by that time it had definitely evolved into something much more elaborate than what had originally been planned. It was pretty much the New Orleans as we know it today. Herb Ryman uh, did a series of watercolor studies of New Orleans Square. Herb Ryman also designed Disneyland's castle. He was really great at coming up with ideas for Disney facades for the parks. And he pretty much came up with the overall layout of New Orleans as we know it today. And he, there's several paintings that he did that are just marvelous, and uh, you can look at them. And there's one that has like a couple nuns with those big, like, flying nun hats for some reason walking <laughs> through the land. Or you can't sure see past means. the edge. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, um, in the 1965 television special called um, Disneyland. 10th anniversary. It was an episode of The Wonderful World of Color, I believe from January of 1965. Walt took Julie Ream, who was the first Disneyland ambassador. That ambassador program that's still going on to this day began as part of Disneyland's 10th anniversary. And her role was to kind of travel around the world as an ambassador and when Walt Disney couldn't do it himself. Because he got so busy with things, he couldn't just keep going around promoting. He had to do work, you know? So that was her role. But he showcased her on that episode and showed some of the projects that were at that time in development. And one of them was New Orleans Square. And he showed her an elaborate scale model of New Orleans Square. And it was pretty much exactly what it became a year later. He also showed the indoor models of what eventually would become Pirates of the Caribbean, which was, of course, part of New Orleans Square. That had evolved, too, because, like I said, it was originally just going to be a walk-through wax museum, but by the time it became a reality, it became a, an elaborate ride-through indoor dark ride with boats and went under the train tracks and on outside the park for a huge show building and all, you know... Everyone knows how elaborate that became. That is sort of the background of New Orleans Square. Let's talk about New Orleans Square as it was in 1966 when it first opened. Let's talk about the shops and what was there that you could see. Disneyland New Orleans Square. A New Orleans of a century ago when she was the gay Paris of the American frontier. Original architecture and atmosphere of old New Orleans of the 1850s has been retained. The narrow winding streets, intimate courtyards, and the iron lace balconies are authentic in every detail.
reflects a tradition of old New Orleans, add color to the streets and courtyards. The quaint shops offer treasures from all over the world. Craftsmen create articles in silver, stained glass, and many other materials. was the birthplace of marching jazz bands. Here in Disneyland's New Orleans Square, this tradition is an everyday occurrence. in French and Creole sidewalk cafes are entertained in true Dixieland fashion. interesting that Walt Disney was there for the grand opening of New Orleans Square. He only passed away a short while after that, but he was there to see that realized. However, there was something missing on opening day. What wasn't there on opening day, Ruth? Pirates of the Caribbean. Right, because they hadn't finished it yet. They finished the facade, but they were still working on the attraction on the inside. So there was a year, almost a year, where New Orleans Square was there, but there was no Pirates of the Caribbean yet. It was still being built. So, Ruth, what are some of the um, original shops that were in New Orleans Square when it first opened? All right, so one of them, which is kind of right when you would um, just pass the Pirates of the Caribbean building, mm -hmm. it would be right. on your left-hand side if you were facing into the street. It would be the right. one-of-a-kind shop. Going down Royal, going right. down what they called Royal Street, right. Right, so that was the one-of-a-kind shop, which was right. an antique shop, actually kind of inspired by Walt's wife because mm -hmm. she loved antiques, and so he wanted to have right. this store, and they actually did sell real antiques. This was not yeah. Disney-fied merchandise at, at all. It was real mm -hmm. antiques. Yeah, and they weren't really concerned about this being a profitable store. It was more 
put there for entertainment purposes for guests to see all of these rare antiques and to enjoy them because a lot of things there were huge too big to take home you'd have to have it sent to you and i mean there were items that ranged in price from five dollars to five thousand dollars so they knew they weren't going to be selling a lot of merchandise in this store but that's not why they put it there they put it there as almost like a museum for guests to go in and just enjoy it wasn't all about you know sell all the merch that we can right you know it was more about the experience and adding to the theming of the land was their first concern. And I remember going in there, because it was still there when I was going to Disneyland as a young boy. My mother absolutely loved that place, so we always had to go in there. And um, yeah, they had some amazing, amazing antiques there. I mean, just like jaw-dropping stuff. It was filled. For, it was completely filled. It was just like every crevice and every corner had just wonderful antiques everywhere. What other shops were there? So kind of behind that, there was a, a shop actually that was just called Bookstand. And so that was there in 1966. And then it had shared space starting in 1967 with the Pirates Arcade. Right. And that really, in the beginning, was an arcade. They may have sold a few items in there, um, like little pirate flags and pirate hats and probably little guns and things like that. Um, but mostly what was in there were arcade games that were pirate-themed. One of those uh, was a fortune-telling machine, which is still in that location, not in the exact same spot, but nearby, and it was called Fortune Red, and you would put in a, a you know, a nickel or whatever. It would move a little bit, and he was dressed like a pirate, and he would spit out your fortune, just sort of exactly the same thing as Esmeralda at the Penny Arcade, but this was the pirate Esmeralda. <laughs> <laughs> And they had, you know, pinball machines. This was before, you know, video games existed. These were all mechanical arcade games. And, you know, they had little gun games and different things. And they were all pirate-themed. And uh, very interesting if you've ever seen old pictures of this area. So it was literally an arcade. They weren't calling it an arcade because sometimes they call shopping centers arcades too mm -hmm. but the, literally when this first opened and for many years thereafter it was an arcade so what else was there Ruth? So moving on down that same street past Club 33 we have the store and it's, it was called Le Gourmet and and right. also it shared this space with another store called Le Forgeron obviously they must have sold dishes and pots and pans and kitchenware at Le Gourmet, right? Yeah. You know what they sold at the other shop? Like silver items? Mm-hmm. Right. So the next store moving on down the street was called Cristal d'Orleans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they sold crystal items. Yeah, gorgeous stuff. I mean, like, New Orleans had the best shop back then they don't they've kind of 
Unfortunately, it's not as wonderful as... Uh, there's some of that still going on there, but at one time, I mean, this is like the ultimate shopping experience. I mean, my mother used to love to go to Disneyland just for the shopping. I mean, that was her number one thing she wanted to do was window shop when she went to Disneyland. And a lot of people felt that way back then, but it's kind of, they've moved away from that because now they're more about selling just, you know, cheap souvenirs and not about displaying, you know, wonderful merchandise that's unique and, and themed to whatever land that it's in. And that crystal to Orleans was, uh, I think it's still there. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. But it's not nearly, I mean, it's a shadow of what it was back then because the, it was just, see, they weren't worried about selling the merchandise. They wanted to display it and, and add to the theming of the land. And if they sold a little bit here and there, so much the better, but that wasn't their prime objective with it. It was more about creating an experience for the guests. And it's sad that they've moved away from that, it really is. So you haven't mentioned my favorite one yet, but I'm sure we'll get to it. I'm sure we will. Um, so next I have um, Lafitte's Silver Shop, which is a shop behind the restaurant Creole Cafe, which mm -hmm. is not known as that anymore, but we'll get to that as well. Right. And then um, also around in this area, there was a candy cart, of course. And then they had a store called now, all these names are French, so bear with me because I don't speak French. But mm -hmm. I think it was Ma Mademoiselle Antoinette's Parfumery. Yes, and you just hit the jackpot. That's my favorite because <laughs> this back in... Okay, nowadays it's much more common, but back in 1966, this was like one of the only places in the United States where you could actually design your own fragrance and they would mix it for you there based on whatever you could they had different samples for you to smell and you could basically come up with your own exclusive fragrance and they would blend it all together for you and you could purchase it again more of an attraction than a shop this is kind of a fun experience right. it's not just about selling it's about the experience so I mean, this place was a hit from the start. Yeah. And women went nutty over the idea that they could create their own fragrance. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not something that you could do. Maybe in New York, you know, it was just very rare to have that experience. So that was something really special right. with, with New Orleans. One of the other things they would do in this shop is once you created your own fragrance, they would write it down and keep it on file. So if you came back, you could just get the same fragrance again. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, that's very good marketing to get people to come back to the park. Because if you're a local and you run out of your fragrance, you could just go to Disneyland <laughs> and plan a trip to the park, you know. So you got people coming back to the park because of that. So that was kind of an ingenious little way to get repeat customers into the park. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I have one other shop that was open in 1966, and it was called mm -hmm. Le Chapeau, and it was a fancy hat shop. Yes, and later I think it was called 
something else, the French name Lamarck's yes. Saxet Modes yes. or something like that. But same shop, just different name. But yeah, they sold, you know, again, no woman is going to buy a Victorian hat with feathers and birds and things all over it. And no man is going to buy a fancy top hat in 1966. But that's what was on sale there. So it's like it wasn't there to be really be sold. I mean, if they sold it, so much the better. But it was there to be looked at and admired as a piece of art. Because, you know, those old hats really are works of art. Mm-hmm. And very interesting to see in person. So it was more about the experience. You could buy the little Mickey Mouse ears and Donald Duck hats there too. But, I mean, the main focus of the shop was putting these elaborate hats on display for guests to see in person. And that is just such a shame that they don't do things like that anymore. I mean, like, they'll put little displays up on the high shelves, you know, to kind of dress the shops up now. But, I mean, this was stuff that was merchandise for sale, and it was all over the shop. It was displayed everywhere. It was in the windows and everywhere. And it, and it, not only did they sell hats, but uh, later when they changed it to Saxet mode, sa- that means handbags in French. Fashionable bags, I think, is what that means. Saxet modes. So they started selling, you know, high-end purses and bags for women there, too. So... Another popular stop for my mother, who <laughs> <laughs> was into all that back then. So, yeah, I mean, they still have some of that going on in New Orleans today, but it's not what it was when Walt had it, you know, that, how Walt wanted it to be. He really kind of, as you alluded to earlier, he kind of used his wife as like, what would you want to see in mm-hmm. these shops? And he used his, her as a gauge because she had her finger on the pulse of what the, you know, middle class woman of America wanted to see back then. Right. So he used her as his little gauge to see and he kind of listened to her advice and all that. Right. So what restaurants were there in the early years? Um, not necessarily on opening day, but uh, there were, I believe, three restaurants. There still are three restaurants in New Orleans Square, and they're the same restaurants. But they were there from, if not opening day, from very early on. Right. The one that I have that's not really a restaurant, it's kind of like a quick service, but the Royal Street Veranda, which is just on the other side of Pirates where you can get your famous bread bowls, that was there in 1966, and it still is active today. Right. In 1966, they didn't do the bread bowl thing. That hadn't come into fashion yet, but what they did sell there was the fritters, the Mm. New Orleans fritters. Which I'm sure if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard me rant and rave about them before because they were absolutely delicious. And they don't really serve them the same way they were served originally. Originally, it was just one big fritter. Right. And there was no filling. Mm-hmm. Now they serve them, they give you four little ones mm-hmm. and they, I, they put like different types of filling. Like sometimes it's apple or yeah. cherries or whatever. But originally, it was just a big ball of goodness that you just (laughs) ate. And it was like, 
it had a similar taste to the churro. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, they didn't sell churros in the park. That didn't happen till the 80s that they sold churros. So, I mean, it was it's just basically fried dough with a bunch of sugar poured all over it. But it was just so good. Mm. And whenever we went to Disneyland, we had to get one. You could order them there or behind the French Market right where the train station was Mm -hmm. and near the restrooms there was another little window a smaller window where you could order them there too and then you could sit in the in the french market and and eat eat it there yeah that was called the mint julep bar opened in 1966 and it's still there today and every time i go to disneyland i have to stop there because i absolutely love the mint juleps it's like one of the things that you cannot get anywhere else and you have mm-hmm. to go to Disneyland to get it, and you cannot go there without getting one. Because I love them. Right. And they're they're non-alcoholic. And it's kind of a minty-flavored kind of 7-Up type drink. And they put a cherry in it. And it's really good. And it's like green yeah. color. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's so fun and refreshing. It's mm-hmm. And then it is. It's a perfect place to sit there at that French Market restaurant, which was also no, open in 1966. And you can sit there, enjoy your drink, your fritters, and sometimes they even have live jazz music playing. Right, because they removed that bandstand from the Rivers of America when they built New Orleans Square, they put pretty much an exact copy of that same bandstand as part of the French market. And what's funny about it is, originally, did you know that that bandstand was just like the Tomorrowland bandstand because it could go up and down? Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. They used to be able, they don't do it anymore, but it used to have a lift on it so that the bands could come up and rise up and perform. But it's been, I think it's been uh, out of repair for years and they don't use it anymore in that way, but... I've seen pictures, I'm, I mean, I've, I've seen moving images of it going up and down. So I know that at one time, I've never seen it do it personally, but I know that at one time it was designed to do that. Because I've seen it with my own eyes <laughs> on TV. Huh. There's a Christmas special called um, Christmas in Disneyland from 1976, and they actually show it doing it in that special. So that's how I know that it used to do that. But the French market, there's some pictures of Walt actually standing by that bandstand, and the Firehouse Five was playing, and he's holding one of those mint juleps that you just described. So that's a real Walt place. He was there. He drank a mint julep there. We know that for sure. There's, <laughs> there's photographic evidence of it. <laughs> awesome. There's another famous picture of him inside of another restaurant in New Orleans Square. What was that one called, Ruth? That was Creole Cafe, which I brought up earlier. And now it's called Cafe Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it's been called Cafe Orleans since as long as I can remember. Right. But yeah, originally it was Creole Cafe. And the picture I'm referring to, there's a picture of Walt Disney standing next to these huge brass coffee machines with a couple of waitresses that work there in their fancy little waitress outfits, and he's drinking a coffee with them. It's a really cute picture. You know what? Um, he actually acquired those espresso machines during a trip yeah. to, Mil- to Milan that he took. 
Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're still there.、Mm-hmm. I've only eaten there a couple times, but I remember the food being really good. And it's one of two places where you can get a very famous sandwich that's sold at Disneyland. What's that, Ruth? It's the Monte Cristo sandwich, which is、yeah. awesome. Yeah. You have to also you got to drink a mint julep and with along with the sandwich as well because this is something、and、that you have to get a fritter. Yep. To go to wash it down. We're、with. just starting the menu here. <laughs> There's so much exclusive, like, and they still sell the fritters、yeah. to this day. They're just prepared a little bit differently, but they're still really good. Yeah, and they still sell this Monte Cristo sandwich. The、mm-hmm. other place they sell it is at the Blue Bayou Restaurant. Right. Yes. Which, of course, is the restaurant that is inside the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Yeah, and it's like you go in there, and it looks like it's nighttime, and it's twilight, and you're right on the banks of a bayou, and it's gorgeous. And you watch the Pirates of the Caribbean boats float by. It's probably Disneyland's fanciest restaurant、mm-hmm. in the park. Yeah, and it's very popular. I've eaten there a couple times. Yes, it's hard to get a seat right on the water because that's you know, of course, the most popular place. To sit because you can watch those boats going by, and what's really interesting about that、uh, restaurant is that when you walk in, if you turn around and look behind you, you'll see what looks like a little、uh, a plantation house, and that was their justification for getting rid of the plantation house because they built a similar-looking structure inside the Blue Bayou. And、um, sometimes they'll actually have. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes they'll have a live band playing on the balcony、mm. of the、um, that plantation house. That's like it's kind of the backdrop of the whole eating area.、Mm-hmm. And it looks like when you're coming into that eating area, it looks like you're coming out of the plantation house. And I just, you know, whenever I think about that place, I can smell it.、Mm. They, that restaurant <laughs> has a certain smell to it, and you always smell it when you're going by、mm-hmm. on the pirate boats. I can't describe the smell, right? Yeah, but it's definitely a food smell. <laughs> it could be the Monte Cristo. It's 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 almost like a light fried、yeah. kind of a smell. Yeah, not heavy. Fried yeah. food. Yeah, yeah, but it's got a distinctive smell in there. It's <laughs> like It instantly brings back memories when you smell it. It's really bizarre.、Yeah. Of course, the the chlorine and the water of pirates is, does that to you right, also. Right. Right. But yeah, I mean, Disney World didn't get a Blue Bayou, which is a shame、mm-hmm. when they built pirates there. But they did open a similar restaurant in their Mexico Pavilion, and it sits right on the edge of the water. Is the boats for the.、Um, The El Rio del Tempo, which is now the Grand Fiesta Tour,、uh, float by. So it's kind of the same idea, but to me, I've eaten it both, and to me, the Disneyland is far superior to the one in in Epcot.、Um, yeah, it's just so much more beautiful, and it's more intimate because、mm-hmm. in the Mexico Pavilion, it's part of that huge room that you're in. Right, in like the shopping, the market area. Yeah, yeah, the market area. Whereas in Disneyland, it's all that's. Part of that is just the restaurant, right?、So、Once you walk in that and building, and you're on the the patio of the plantation house, you are immersed、yeah. in that world. Yeah, I mean, you don't even know if it's light outside still. 
Yeah, it's a really odd experience <laughs> to go in where it's daytime outside. You go in and it looks like it's night and then you leave and it's daytime again <laughs> <Right>. outside. <laughs> but what's even weirder is if you go in late in the day and it's daylight outside, you go in and it's dark and then you leave and it's dark. It was daylight <laughs> when you went in and then... <laughs> So, uh, of course, we talked about the attractions, the Haunted Mansion, and the Pirates of the Caribbean. And so, we're not going to really get into that. But I would like to mention that um, the architecture on the Pirates of the Caribbean building at the entrance is based, and I would have to say, very loosely based. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) On an actual structure in the French Quarter of the real New Orleans. Do you have that, Ruth? Yeah, Cabildo Building in Jackson Square. Right, and what something famous actually happened there. This was the site where the Louisiana Purchase was signed in 1803. And you know how much Walt was a history buff, so I'm sure it, it tickled his jollies to include an homage to the building where the Louisiana Purchase was uh Commission. I mean, he even mentions the Louisiana Purchase on his little introduction that he did. He did a TV episode where he showed the recently opened New Orleans section of Disneyland. And he leads off to it by talking about the Louisiana Purchase. So you know that was something that Walt was into right. that whole idea of it. So Yeah, he's standing right in front of a large map showing the whole entire yeah. land area that was bought for less than the amount that it cost for them to build the New Orleans Square. So <laughs> Exactly. Which is really funny. Right. But anyway, the other there's a the mansion, the haunted mansion is actually based on a real mansion that no longer exists, but it was in a it was in some architectural book that would have been privy to the Imagineers back then. And if you've ever seen the black and white photographs of that uh, building, it's an exact copy of yes, that building. It is. Yeah. It, there's no doubting that that's what the haunted mansion was based on. And um, it's uh, worth mentioning because we're gonna kind of compare and contrast the haunted mansion. Because when we get to our Liberty Square section, this mansion is kind of a, um, you know, a southern plantation-style mansion. And one thing that's interesting is how Walt was insistent that the landscaping, he wanted it to be very clean and pristine and not look at all like it was a haunted house. He wanted the building to be beautiful and, and not run down looking. And he just didn't feel that he wanted to mess up his beautiful Disneyland with a run-down looking building, even though it would have been cool and add to the theming. He was more concerned with keeping his park looking as beautiful as possible. And um, he said, we'll take care of the outside and the ghosts take care of the inside. That was kind of a famous Waltism (laughs) when it comes to the Haunted Mansion. What's also interesting, we kind of didn't mention, is that when they put in New Orleans Square, they moved the railroad tracks back quite a bit to accommodate more space. Originally, Disneyland was like a perfect triangle, but over the year, the train tracks that created the border of Disneyland were a perfect triangle, but over the years, they've been pushing that triangle out. It's more of a circle now than a triangle. 
But um, that was one of the first times, and it is the first time, they ever actually moved the railroad tracks out to put more attractions in. They did it again when they put in Small World, too. But in doing so, they had to move where the train station was. So they actually took the original train station and moved it. They didn't get rid of it. And it's still there to this day. And it's not the train station that you actually wait in line at. It's on the other side of the train tracks. And they actually have a little telegraph office in that, you know, a fake telegraph office. But you hear a constant telegraph clicking. And you know what that that uh, telegraph message is, Ruth? Yes, it's um, passages from Walt Disney's opening day speech when Disneyland opened. Exactly, like to all come to this. It's not the full speech, right. it's just part of it. But it just repeats on a loop all day, every day. You, And that sound, it's like one of those sounds you hear, you're, you know you're in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You can hear it all around that area, and it just... There's something about that that's just so magical. Like it's just a clicking yeah, sound. Yeah, you're right. It it has this just distinctive sound to it. It's like how you used to feel when you'd walk by the treehouse, mm-hmm. when you'd hear that yep. Swiss-Kapoka. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, Disneyland just isn't about the sights, it's about the smells and the sounds, and there's so many, all your senses are being Definitely. touched Definitely. by the magic of that place. One thing that was cool was when, when they had the train closed last year for the refurbishments that they were doing Mm -hmm. they actually allowed people to go across the train tracks and go to that um train station there in new orleans slash frontierland yeah you got to a rare opportunity there to, to actually see the original train station which incidentally was based on the train station set that was built for the walt disney film so dear to my heart But Walt didn't realize at the time that he was going to need a train station like that for his park because it wasn't being built yet. So he actually gave it to Ward Kimball and he put it on his property and Walt actually asked for it back and Ward said no. (laughs) So Walt had to build a a replica of it, but it's based on the, on the, the one used in that movie and the actual one from the movie I believe is still around. Um, It's not on the Ward Kimball estate anymore because that no longer is the Ward Kimball estate, but I I believe it still exists. It might be uh, something that that the Railroad Museum at Griffith Park in Los Angeles might have a hold of. I'm not sure exactly, but I'm pretty sure that structure is still around. Anyway, before we leave New Orleans, let's talk about changes over the years. Uh, One major change happened in 87, Ruth. What was that? Yeah, so the facade of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride was changed, and they actually built a bridge walkway in front of it, and this was to allow crowds to pass through New Orleans without causing a traffic jam with the guests waiting in line for the ride. 
So yeah, do you remember the line before they built that bridge roof yes. when you were a little girl? Yes. Oh my god, it was a <laughs> nightmare. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it was just a sea of people mm-hmm. in front of that building. And it was back then, it was all flat. Right. They kind of built it more up to go up to the build. Like, it was like just a sea of people from the shore of the rivers of America up to up to that building. And they had already started doing nighttime entertainment on the rivers of America, even before the Phantasmic. So it got to be a huge issue when people were trying to watch the river show at night and there's this huge bottleneck in front of Pirates of the Caribbean was happening. It, it became a safety issue as well as just an annoyance, a major annoyance for the guests. So Tony Baxter actually designed that whole thing, that bridge. And when they built the bridge, what else did they add to the to that land? They added a couple of staircases leading up mm-hmm. around the front of the facade, which became above there, the second floor, was the Disney Gallery. Right. And what's interesting about the Disney Gallery is when Walt Disney built New Orleans Square, he intended to have a private residence on the second floor of Pirates of the Caribbean. And... It was all being designed by Lillian was picking out the fabrics and the carpets <laughs> and the she was working with a famous set designer who did all the sets for Gone with the Wind. I forget her name, but this was going to be quite the place for the Disney family to hang out because the firehouse on Main Street was becoming way too small because Walt's family was expanding at this point. He had <laughs> grandchildren and It was, you know, he needed a bigger place, and what a gorgeous view of the river. I mean, this would have been his ultimate dream come true to be able to to stay there, but unfortunately, he passed away before that got completed, and it remained kind of empty for several years. I do know one, they use it for offices, and I do know that a lot of the planning for Tokyo Disneyland Mm -hmm. was done up there. And then it just kind of sat empty after Tokyo opened and they decided to utilize the space and actually allow day guests to go up there. And they created a whole museum up there of of fantastic models and uh, concept art for Disney attractions. Yeah, I really miss this. Oh, me too. Mm. This was was amazing. Yes, this was a go-to place. Mm -hmm. I could spend hours in there. They, one thing that was really cool about it is the music that they would play. Mm-hmm. And they had a whole Tomorrowland um, exhibit at one point when they were building the new Tomorrowland in 98. Mm-hmm. Before, Like a couple years before it, they had a whole Tomorrowland section in, in there. And they were playing a lot of the old soundtracks from like Adventure Through Inner Space and The People Mover and things like that. And this was before any of that stuff was available to anybody. Hmm. So I would actually go in there (laughs) and just stand in there and listen to that for hours. Mm -hmm. Because it was the only way to hear it was to do it there. Right. So I remember doing that and it was like, so what a great memory that was to be able to, to listen to all that stuff again and... Who knew computers would make it possible for all that stuff to be more available to everybody? But right, 
back then was different. I actually was able to take the Walking in Walt's Footsteps tour at Disneyland mm -hmm. when this was still the Disney Gallery. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, we definitely went up there with the tour guide and they explained how the apartment was going to be arranged as we were standing in there, you know, with with all the paintings and stuff, we actually went into the entrance of the gallery the way that Walt would have entered, which was back behind mm -hmm. kind of, um, it's called like the Court of Angels now. Yes. Um, there was like a, a staircase with a upper level balcony, and that's mm -hmm. actually the door that he would have entered had that been his apartment. Right. And we went up through that way. And then we actually got to eat lunch on the patio there, and it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, they had a really nice little patio in the center of it all, and with a fountain and everything. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. It's beautiful and up there. I actually saw someone famous there once. Oh, really? Yes. He was uh, signing things and drawing things and talking to people. A uh, gentleman we have mentioned on the show several times, uh, Mark Davis. Oh, wow. Yes, I saw him in person, and I was too shy to go up to him because I was really young. And you I didn't get still, his, his autograph? I was still a teenager. Yeah, I didn't. I was too afraid. Aww. I don't know. You know how you are when you're a teenager. Yeah. You're like, everything's embarrassing. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's but too bad. That's like your favorite animator. I know, but at least I can say I saw him in person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Aww. Yeah. So then um, what ended up happening is they closed the Disney Gallery and they turned it into what they call the Dream Suite. And basically, this is a place for Bob Iger to spend the night. That's why they built it. I mean, come on. Uh, their justification for this originally was that they were going to give away a prize, and every night a special Disneyland guest would get to spend the night. Well, that lasted about a year. Right. And now it's just kind of like, unless you're, you know... A celebrity right you don't ever get to see that or if you go on the walking in waltz footsteps tour they bring you up there which i don't even understand because it's nothing like what walt had planned on doing with that space right it's like how does that have anything i mean maybe you're in the same place where his apartment would have been but it's uh i don't know i feel like it's a little too exclusive and Walt would never have liked that. Definitely. And that brings us to the next topic of Club 33. And I've already gone over how I feel about Club 33. And originally, it was cool because it was a real secret. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew about it. And unless you were like a diehard Disney fan, you'd never heard of it. And uh, it was not obvious that it was there. It was very hidden. You couldn't even tell it was there originally. But then a few years ago, they decided to expand it, and now it's very obvious that it's there, and it's intrusive to the regular guest. They closed off a beautiful area, which was a very popular place for guests to take their annual Christmas photos. People would specifically go to the park every year and stand on the stairs in the Court of Angels and take their annual holiday photo, and then each year you would see how the family had grown, the kids grew up, and so it became a tradition for a lot of California residents to do that. 
and they decided to close that whole area off to the regular guests. So now only members of Club 33 have access to that beautiful little area back there, which uh, Ruth had mentioned that was actually where Walt would have entered his apartments was in that area. Um, there's a staircase that leads up to where Club 33 is now, and that's the staircase where Walt would have gone up to go to his apartment. They actually built this really ugly elevator in that little courtyard area <laughs> that doesn't fit the theming or anything, and it's just, they ruined that. They To me, they put all this, like, um, Art Nouveau um, brass work all around the stairs that doesn't match the time period of where New Orleans is supposed to take place because Art Nouveau was a late 19th century design, and this is supposed to be, like, the... The 1870, like it's not. They're they're mixing time periods mm -hmm. with, with right. this, all this Art Nouveau stuff that they've been throwing into the land lately. It's not supposed to take place during that time. It's supposed to be earlier, like in the days of the frontier. And Walt even said in the days of the frontier, when New Orleans was the Paris of the American frontier. That's a Walt Disney quote, and they're going against that. And then the other thing is how. They have all these bridges going over with huge windows that don't match the scaling of the rest of the windows. And you can see all the fancy-smancy people walking around up there that feel they're superior to you and looking down on the little peons that don't have the privileges that they have. I mean, it's just like, it makes you feel like dirt. Yeah. And Walt Disney said, in Disneyland, I want everyone to feel like they're a king, mm -hmm. like they're a VIP. And that goes against that philosophy, too. Right. And then the other thing is they actually moved a window around on the outdoor patio of Cafe Orleans. And now it's not centered anymore, and it looks terrible. And the reason they did that was so that it would be centered on the inside for the fancy-smancy people. But now it looks ugly to everybody, all the, you know, the peon guests from the outside. So I've gone on about how I feel about all this exclusivity that's been coming to the Disney parks. But I think that the whole Club 33 is the most blatant example of it. Because it, it took something that was fine, that I had no problem with because it was private and it was hidden. It was actually cool. And it had a lot of Walt Disney's personal touches involved. They got rid of all of Walt Disney's personal touches. They made it this gaudy-looking thing. And now you've, you can see all the activity going on up there now. And it's like, you, it makes you feel like you're less than other people. And I don't like that. I don't like that in general, but especially when you're going to Disneyland. That's supposed to be an escape from that reality of life. You're supposed to feel special and magical when you're at Disneyland and not like you're not among the privileged. Right. Yeah. I definitely agree with you. I mean, I feel like the windows that they added removes the f actual feeling of being in a New Orleans street. Exactly. Because they're going more for that whole Art Nouveau right. thing that doesn't match up with the time period of New Orleans. Right. It doesn't Or fit. the design aesthetic. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I do definitely agree with you with the Club 33. I mean, they used to call it the worst kept secret in Disneyland. And that was, you know, it was still a secret, though, because, you know, you want to have this... You couldn't see it. Right. That, so it was a secret because it was still hidden. Right. And it had a secret entrance. And and that was kind of the charm about it. 
Yeah. And they just took that away. They took out the whole trophy room that Walt Disney had designed, um, where he was going to have a bird talk to the people eating, like an audio animatronic, and he would have someone standing behind talking to interact with the guests. Mm. And he had, he, this whole room where that was designed was called the Trophy Room, and it had a lot of really interesting Walt Disney touches, and they just demolished it and put a, and expanded the kitchen instead of having something Walt Disney had a hand in. And they got rid of... He had an elevator that he had actually selected from... He wanted to buy the elevator from a hotel in Europe, and they wouldn't sell it to him, so he had an exact duplicate made. Mm-hmm. And um, they got rid of that, too. On that tour I took, we actually got to go into the lobby and stand in that elevator. Yeah. Yeah, they would do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, other changes uh, over the years is they changed... The shops are pretty much the same buildings that were always there, but they've changed what the shops sell. So, Ruth, do you want to go over the names of the shops as they are currently in New Orleans sure. and and what used to be where they are now. So one of a kind shop is now known as Port Royal, mm-hmm. but it had gone through a couple of name changes and you're mm-hmm. going to recognize a couple of these names because the names kind of floated around to different buildings. So yeah. after it was a one of a kind shop, it was Le Gourmet. I remember when it was that. And then it was Le Baton Rouge. And then Port Royal. <laughs> yeah, and I remember they, they, for a while it was a Christmas shop, too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that was for a really short stint. Right. But yeah, I do remember being Le Gourmet for a while, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a disappointment. Right. <laughs> so the next one to that, so we talked about the book stand, and then it was the Pirate's Arcade. And then yeah. now it's known as Pieces of Eight. Yeah, and it is basically a gift shop. It's no longer an arcade. There's no games in there anymore, except for Fortune Red is the only (laughs) remaining thing. Right. So back a little bit farther, we had the two shops, the Le Gourmet and the Le Forgeron, in the same Mm -hmm. building. And Mm -hmm. these have changed names over the years as well. So Le Gourmet became Port d'Orleans, and then mm-hmm. La Boutique de Noël, which is what I think you were thinking about for the Christmas. The Christmas. Yeah. Okay. And maybe it was back there. Yeah. yeah. And now it's called Le Baton Rouge. And then, which is like the gothic. Right. Like the Nightmare Before stuff. Christmas stuff. And Haunted Mansion mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And the Pieces of Eight is all pirate stuff. Right. Right. And the Port Orleans, what is the other one? The one where uh, one of a kind shop was. Oh, the Port Royal. Yeah. Do you know what they sell in there? I think it's more pirate stuff, actually. I think it's, yeah, like different. I think they do still have like some Nightmare Before Christmas, some pirates, some Haunted Mansion, kind of like a... It's just a mess, right, basically. Right. <laughs> it's not what it's supposed to be. Right. Bring back one of a kind. <laughs> but it really hurt to have one gift shop not sell anything. I mean, I you make enough money, Disney. <laughs> Can you have one shop in New Orleans be just to look at? Especially since the stuff they have there, you can find it other stores in other areas. I know. You can find it at the store next to it right. and and down the road at, at the Le Baton Rouge. Right. And if all else fails, you can find it at the Emporium. Right, exactly. So, so Le Forgeron became La Boutique Dior, 
and then the chocolate collection, and then Le Ornament Magique, but which is no longer there. Basically, they sell jewelry there. Right. So yeah. these stores have kind of rotated throughout the years. And then the Mademoiselle Antoinette's perfumery became the Jewel of Orleans for a little bit of time. And then right. went back. And they sold jewelry there too, yeah. And then it went back to the perfumery name. Mm-hmm. But they don't do the perfume mixing anymore right. there. Right, right. And then what, what What? did the hat store become? So La Chapeau, you talked about it already. It was, Yeah. this is, again, I don't speak French, but yeah. Marche aux Fleurs, Saxette Mode. So it was Flower yeah. Market Stylish Bags. Yeah. I don't know the name of it now, but after that it became La Masquerade d'Orleans. Oh, that's But right, then yeah. now, I don't know if it's still called that, but right now it's a Pandora shop. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Stuff you can buy in in your local mall. Right. Now being sold at Disneyland. That's just wonderful. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we didn't mention this, but I definitely want to mention the parasol cart, which was oh, yeah. started in 1990. But that's um, a really fun thing that they have still today. And that actually is the same cart that used to be the candy cart. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's this cute little white cart. It's been there for decades. It's still there. Yeah. And they still sell stuff from it. And they do still <laughs> hand paint these parasols. Yeah, and another thing they do is they'll do... They have artists that will do your um, portraits. Oh, yes, they do that. Yeah, they do like little charcoal drawings mm-hmm. of you while you sit there. That's kind of across from the um, Blue Bayou entrance. Yeah, they used to do it in the Court of Angels mm. before they closed that all off to us little poor people <laughs> who aren't good enough. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's basically New Orleans in a nutshell. So kind of a quick honorable mention here while we're talking about New Orleans is... We got to mention Tokyo Disneyland. Now, Mm -hmm. they don't actually have a New Orleans square, but Mm -hmm. in their Adventureland, they have kind of a themed quote unquote subland, and it's themed Mm -hmm. to New Orleans. And this is where they have the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and it has the same facade as Disneyland. Yeah. And they also have some of the same restaurants and shops. So they have Mm -hmm. a Royal Street veranda, they also have a Mm -hmm. Blue Bayou restaurant. And then they have a Cafe Orleans. Right. And it's basically an exact clone, minus the Haunted Mansion area, of the Disneyland version. Right. I mean, it's it, if you look at pictures of it, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's an exact replica of the Disneyland. Um, the only thing that would really give it away is the fact that they never built that bridge or those stairs in front mm-hmm. of the Pirates of the Caribbean building. So... If you want to ever see what that used to look like before they added it, you just look at the pictures of Tokyo Disneyland's pirates. Right. Which is interesting. But yeah, the the thing is that you have to remember, these are people from another part of the world, so what is considered exotic to them is different than what is considered exotic to Americans. So the idea of New Orleans may be something they consider far off and exotic and, and adventureful, Whereas in the United States, that's just, you know, part of our own world. So we don't consider that necessarily. We we have other emotions attached to it, but exoticism is not one of them. So (laughs) it really wouldn't fit 
in Adventureland from the American perspective, but from the Japanese perspective, I can understand why they would put it in their Adventureland. Moving on to another square, Liberty Square. This is a story told in Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes. It's a book about a boy who lived in the time of Paul Revere, and it tells a vital chapter of the Liberty story. In fact, this book intrigued us so much that we not only made a Technicolor motion picture of it, we're also creating an entire new section in Disneyland the Park based upon it. As you know, Disneyland Park is a sort of a monument to the American way of life. But after reading Johnny Tremaine, we realized we had overlooked one major item in the blueprint, a memorial to the freedoms that made it all possible. Well, we're busy putting it in, right here off the town square. We're calling it Liberty Street. Everything's in the planning stage, of course, but our research has taken us back to a period we'd like to recreate as a reminder that the Liberty story is a story without end. In effect, Liberty Street will be Johnny Tremaine's Boston of about 1775. So Liberty Square was something Walt had planned very early for Disneyland, right around the time he made a film called Johnny Tremaine. And and during the production of that, he realized that he kind of dropped the ball with Disneyland by not including a section of his park devoted to early America, the colonial period. And he even said so on one of his uh, television intros that uh, when he was promoting Johnny Tremaine on an episode of his uh, weekly series, he mentions the fact that they forgot to include this in Disneyland. And so he said, but now we're putting it in. (laughs) And he described a whole Liberty Street area. So this was something that was not, you know, it's not like today where the the Imagineers keep everything so secretive until it's like everything's been finally approved and decided. When Walt came up with something, even if it was going to eventually change, he just kind of immediately let the word out about it. He didn't care if people found out about it. He wanted to talk about what he's working on. So anyway, this would have gone on behind the Opera House in that big area behind Tomorrowland and Main Street that really to this day has never been filled in with anything. It's basically just an area that they keep the floats between parades and they do deliveries and it's just kind of a commercial area back there that's never been open for guests. But Walt wanted to fill in that area with what he was calling Liberty Street. And um, it would have all been uh, themed to colonial America. And this uh, would have actually had 13 buildings because he wanted 13 to represent the 13 colonies. And it would have kind of been set up in a circle like a cul-de-sac kind of a situation that you could enter from Town Square on Main Street. And there would have been a candle-making shop and an apothecary where they showed you how they made medicine back then and a silversmith and, you know, all the different types of businesses that would go on. 
So, I mean, even back then, he was not thinking about how much merch can we sell in these shops. He was thinking about how can we create an experience for the guests to immerse themselves in this time period of the past and learn about American history. That was his primary objective. It wasn't to sell stuff. People already bought their ticket to go into the park. Now he wants to entertain them, (laughs) you know? So all these shops would have been, you know, creating this cul-de-sac. And then one of the buildings, there would have been a hall of presidents and a hall of the Declaration of Independence. And there would have been a small presentation inside the hall of the Declaration of Independence talking about the history of that document. And it would have been some sort of a multimedia presentation. I don't know the full details on it. I do also know that there would have been a model of the Capitol building included in one or the other of these two halls as part of the pre-show display. And that building, that Capitol building, was actually constructed and carved out of marble And it's still located. It's something that they were going to include in this, but it eventually ended up in the lobby of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And it's still there to this day. So that model of the Capitol building that you see before you go into the main show of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, that's something Walt Disney saw. That was something he was going to include in his original plans for Liberty Street. So that's a real piece of Disneyland history right there. And that's an amazing model. It's completely carved out of marble. Can you imagine? I mean, it's an exact replica of the Capitol building. So anyway, inside the Hall of Presidents, he would have had a show called One Nation Under God. And this would have been basically what we know as today as the Hall of Presidents in Walt Disney World. But... The problem was, in 1957, when this was first all announced and they were going to do all this, they were showing pictures of it to the public. It was on guide maps. It was on those big maps I talked about earlier where they showed the coming attractions. I mean, they were going forward with this as far as Walt was concerned. But the problem was they did not have the technology to convincingly show the presidents the first thought was to just have them be wax figures but i mean walt wasn't satisfied with that he wanted them to move like real people and they just didn't have that technology so they started developing that technology by starting with lincoln so they were working on the lincoln figure and then robert moses came to the disney studio to discuss the World's Fair. Robert Moses was the kind of the mastermind behind the 64 World's Fair. And they were, you know, talking and Walt kind of took him around the WED studio and showed him some of the attractions that they were working on, one of which was the figure for Lincoln, the prototype. And Robert right then and there said, we are not opening this fair without that Lincoln. And he threw money at Walt threw money at him. He got the state of Illinois to sponsor it. So they basically dropped all their plans for Liberty Street at that point and focused just on the Lincoln figure. And that eventually is what opened at the World's Fair. 
great moments with Mr. Lincoln, and then one year later made its way back to Disneyland, and it's basically the same presentation that you can see to this day at Disneyland, which is known as Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. But originally, the plan was to include all the presidents of the United States up to Eisenhower, because Eisenhower was the president in 57. So that just never happened, because they decided to focus on Lincoln. And then after the fair, Walt turned his attention elsewhere. He, he needed to get New Orleans done, pirates done. He had so many projects going on that he just never went back to Liberty Square. So, when they started designing the new Magic Kingdom that would go in Florida, they realized that New Orleans is really close to Florida. And people may not appreciate it as much there as they would in California, which is quite a distance from New Orleans. So it's, it's basically something people could drive to from Florida and see the real New Orleans. So the Imagineers thought that they should come up with a different theme for the equivalent in their Magic Kingdom of New Orleans. So they went back to Walt Disney's original concept of Liberty Street, and out of that came what we know today as Liberty Square. And in addition, they finally realized Walt Disney's dream of having a presentation representing all the presidents of the United States. And by 71, when uh, Liberty Square opened, they had the technology to pull this off convincingly. And they really did pull it off quite convincingly, especially for 1971. Um, the other thing that was in the back of their mind at the time was the fact that the bicentennial was coming. So it would be nice to have an area of the park that sort of celebrated our bicentennial. And they also felt that a lot of the elements that were in New Orleans Square could translate into Liberty Square, like a lot of the different shops that they had. They could somehow configure them so that they would also work in Liberty Square. So it was kind of the Disney World answer to the theme of New Orleans Square. Um, what's also interesting is how they flip-flopped Frontierland. Frontierland in, in Walt Disney World is actually on the opposite side. So instead of entering from the hub into Frontierland, you would enter into Liberty Square, and then Frontierland is basically where New Orleans Square would be in Disneyland. So they kind of flip-flopped it. Because I, I think they felt that Liberty Square would make a grander entrance from the hub. Although I don't really agree. I, I wish they had done it the same way as Disneyland. Because you it's more like you want to have the lands touching the hub. Frontier land, adventure land, fantasy land, tomorrow land. And then you can have the little squares and toontowns and whatnot. And bear countries elsewhere. But the main lands should be the ones touching the hub but that's just you know i think they did that because what they're actually doing with liberty square and leading into frontierland is telling a geographical history story like starting yes, talk about that at, with liberty square starting in like mm -hmm. the 1600s 
and then traveling mm-hmm. through, you know, the uh, rivers of America and frontier land. And then that ends in the 1880s, which is like Southern California gold rush kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but I don't think, I mean, I get that in theory, but I, I think <laughs> that probably 99% of people who go to the park have no idea. I mean, there's no, there's no way that you would ever know that. And it does create some confusion, too, because some things are not in the right place, you would think. Yeah. For example, their version of the Golden Horseshoe, which is called the Diamond Horseshoe, mm-hmm. is technically in Liberty Square. Mm-hmm. And for many years, it was actually on the guidebooks called a Liberty Square attraction, but that doesn't make any sense that's not something that would have been in colonial america that was definitely a frontier thing right and then the fact that they have the steamboat dock in liberty square doesn't make sense because they didn't have steamboats during the 1600s yeah (laughs) yeah i mean so there's some confusion there because they were trying to be cute with their storyline of american history and i don't think I really, I think it's nice to think of it, and it's kind of a fun little side note to say, oh, that's cool, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I don't think they really pulled it off. Right, right. No, I agree with you. You And they still list the Diamond Horseshoe as being in Liberty Square, because it's on my map that I just went there in December. Yeah, see? I mean, it does. that does not make any sense Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Fortunately, it doesn't really face Liberty Square, so unless... It kind of is when you turn the corner. Right. And you're kind of going towards Frontierland. So it's kind of, you know, not... It does look kind of like it is in Frontierland, even though... Right, it does. You're right. It's right. Kind of. It's kind of right on the line mm-hmm. when you're crossing into what Frontierland is. But so, Ruth, well, let's first talk about what ended up being the Hall of Presidents. Originally, it was going to be called One Nation Under God which was going to be inside the building, which was called the Hall of Presidents. But they kind of decided maybe we should be a little bit more secular in in what we call this attraction, so it's more inclusive for everybody. I mean, they were already getting politically correct back in the 70s, (laughs) which, I mean, I can understand why they wouldn't want to call it One Nation Under God. Um, But so, So they just kind of called the whole thing the Hall of Presidents. And originally, it was going to include a Circle Vision 360 presentation that would culminate with the Hall of Presidents, but they decided to have it be a sit-down theater instead, and they did kind of a half-circle of screens in front of you instead of a full 360-degree screens. But they included every president up to Nixon, who by now, it's the 70s, so he was the current president. And um, it was very similar to Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, but a lot more expansive. And instead of talking just about Lincoln's life, the original show talked a lot more about the Constitution of the United States and how it had been challenged over the years and um, kind of where it has led us into the 21st century, or back then the 20th century. So it, it ended with the curtain rising and you'd see all of the presidents sitting or standing in a big hall you know that looked a lot like the the same 
thing at Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln with, you know, the pillars and it kind of looks colonial and and kind of like they're at the White House or something, mm-hmm. you know, that style of mar- white marble pillars and things. But a lot bigger, of course. And they're all sitting and standing and, and they don't really, most of them just have basic movements, but that's what people in real life would do if they were watching someone give a speech they'd be standing there and kind of shifting their weight and nodding their head a little bit maybe shaking their if they if their legs are crossed they might move their leg up and down a little bit all those kind of gestures were happening with all the different presidents it was very convincing Mm -hmm. with the the lighting that they used and everything so the only president who spoke originally was lincoln And he basically did exactly the same after they did a roll call naming all the presidents and then a spotlight would go on each one so you'd know who who was who. Then they kind of introduced Lincoln and he came up and he stood up just like in the Disneyland version. He stood up and he gave a very similar speech to the one that he gave at Disneyland. And just like Disneyland, it ended with the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it was actually the exact same recording of Battle Hymn of the Republic. And so it was very close to the Disneyland presentation, but much bigger and more expansive. In this Hall of Presidents, Let us pay homage to the immortal men whose illustrious names have been indelibly inscribed on history's roll of honor. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, James K. Polk, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, James A. Garfield, Chester A. Arthur, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard M. Nixon. From these men, the free world may take new inspiration and hope. And, if it be wise, new wisdom from old words of prophecy. 
And that went on for several years. And as each president was elected, they added a new president. They added Ford and then Carter and then Reagan and then the first George Bush. And then when Clinton became president, they decided to redo the whole show. They used, it was basically the same show, but they, re, they added new narrative. They showed the same images on the screens, but they kind of rewrote the script a little bit. And they had Maya Angelou do the narration for that version. And the big change was that uh, Clinton actually spoke and gave a short little speech. But then after Clinton finished, Lincoln again stood up and said, had the final words. So they still had Lincoln talking at the end. They did the same thing with Bush, but when Bush got elected, they added some more technology to the screens. So what you'd see on the screens had been all changed and they pretty much changed the whole narration. And that was kind of a big change. Not much change with Obama as far as that goes. Oh, the narrator was Morgan Freeman then. Right, they, they would change the narrator to Morgan Freeman, and they had kind of the same slideshow going on that they had during Bush, but now it was a new narrator. And then with um, Donald Trump, they have a brand new screen. Like, the whole presentation has totally been changed. And another big change, ever since uh, the second George Bush, uh, Lincoln has not been the person to have the final word, the current president has uh, said the final word. And Lincoln actually is heard earlier during the presentation in the middle of the show. And the current show tells the history of the presidents, focusing on some of the heavy hitters like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, of course, both of the Roosevelt's. And then after that, you again see the roll call and all of the presidents. So during the Lincoln segment before the roll call, you see Lincoln on stage by himself and he stands up and delivers the Gettysburg Address. So now during the roll call, you hear Donald Trump and he has the final word. And you do not hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic anymore. You just hear some instrumental patriotic music at the end of the presentation because they always had the Battle Hymn of the Republic at the end because it's associated with Abraham Lincoln. And when he gave the final word of the presentation, it made sense to end with that song. But now that uh, Lincoln is heard earlier during the presentation, they just have some original patriotic sounding instrumental music as kind of the grand finale music. So it's gone through several changes over the years. But it's basically the same type of show it's always been. It's just we've added more presidents. The way we look at the world has changed a little bit, so they've updated the film to reflect modern thinking. And other than that, I mean, it's pretty much the same as it always was. So that's the Hall of Presidents. That's kind of the, the major attraction of the Liberty Square proper. There's another e-ticket attraction that we will mention in a minute, but that's kind of like the whole central focus of that area. One thing that I is just amazing about this attraction is that the Disney Imagineer Blaine Gibson created all of the presidential figures except for Obama and Trump. And that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would argue that 
Trump and Obama are probably the least close to their real selves look of the real presidents yeah they're a little off Mm -hmm. both of them especially trump Mm -hmm. right which is disappointing because i really feel like however you feel about trump he still should be you know depicted properly and i don't know i think they could have done a lot better than what they did right this is disney imagineering they they should be putting out quality like top-notch product it might look different from far away because right, you're not really true. standing right next to it like all the pictures you see right. on TV of it. But yeah, that's a little bit of a disappointment there. Right. But anyway, let's talk about uh, Liberty Square shops and things, other things to see in that area. All right. So Liberty Square has some really unique and immersive details that they the Imagineers who designed this area has put in there to try and make it really authentic so that you really feel like you are in colonial times. And one of them, this is kind of like a, like a urban legend, but this is true that the walkway has a kind of like a brown trail of stones, stone kind of area running through the center of the whole open area. And Mm -hmm. the other area is kind of like a, reddish looking walkway but then with this brown strip going through the middle Mm -hmm. and what this does is it represents the way that the sewer system worked in colonial america which was none (laughs) which was toss it out the exactly make sure if you're walking you have a parasol or a big hat that's that's why women carried parasols back then So that's what that trail represents. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, back to authenticity and a couple of other things. So some of the buildings have shutters on them that are actually not straight. They're kind of hanging. And that's because during the Revolutionary War, all of the metal was used to make ammunition, including the hinges on these shutters. So what they took all the hinges off and they replaced them with leather and when the leather would get worn and and through like rain and things like that, it would stretch so the shutters actually yeah. were kind of hanging. They weren't laying straight against the buildings. Right. So they're at slight angles. Right. And that's not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. And also in Liberty Square, they have a replica of the House of Burgesses. And in the second floor upstairs window, there is two lanterns, which represents Paul Revere's one if by land, two if by sea. So we Mm. know that there was two lanterns that represented that the British were coming by sea. So in the Mm. upstairs window, you see two lanterns. Yes. And one other thing that I wanted to mention is they purposely did this, kind of going along with the brown trail. They There are no indoor restrooms in this square except for where they're required in the full-service restaurants. Mm -hmm. Which is the Columbia House and the Liberty Tree Tower. Right. So one thing that's interesting feature in Liberty Square is they have a huge oak tree that is a living oak tree. It's called the um, the largest living thing in the Magic Kingdom, and it literally is. They spotted it somewhere else, and they had it moved specifically to Liberty Square because they wanted to represent the Liberty Tree which is featured in the movie Johnny Tremaine, by the way. And they hung 13 lanterns from the Liberty Tree to represent the 13 colonies 
And it's a gorgeous tree, especially at night when you see all the lanterns hanging mm -hmm. from it. Yeah. And it's just a really beautiful touch to that area. And it's, it, it's neat that there was a real Liberty Tree in Boston. It's a real thing. It's not just from, from the movie, but it has that Disney tie-in because it was in the movie that inspired this land. So I love that. Right. And it's cool that it's a real tree because, you know, you think of the Swiss yeah. Family Robinson treehouse. Yeah. That's not a real tree. But and this it's a is huge. Tree. Yeah, it's like it was a major hassle to move it. Um, they had to go through a lot to get that tree planted and not have it die on them when they're moving. Right. Also, the entrance to the land used to have a series of flags representing the thirteen colonies on the bridge that you cross over to get into the land. But in the eighties, they moved those to surround an area where they had put in a replica of the Liberty Bell. And they have in a little square in front of the entrance to the Hall of Presidents, they have a, a very authentic replica of the actual Liberty Bell. The only difference is you can get right up near it and touch it, unlike the real Liberty Bell. And so all those 13 flags are surrounding it. And a nice little area. Another fun feature is how they have those um, shackles mm -hmm, right that represent you know how they would put people that broke the law <laughs> on public display back then <laughs> and it's kind of a funny photo opportunity yeah because you can stick your arms in there and your head and then have your picture taken like oh we're in shackles yeah. you know what's funny about those is i i live in virginia and i only live 20 minutes away from williamsburg where they have yeah. colonial williamsburg and that is one of the things they have there too is those shackles yeah, where you can exactly. take pictures, yeah. Right. I mean, this is kind of like the same idea as Colonial Williamsburg, but to a, I mean, that's much more elaborate right. than the Disneyland version, but, and it's more authentic, of course, than the Disneyland version. Right. It's the same idea, same theming going on here. Yeah, and then let's talk about uh, the, the shops and restaurants in uh, Liberty Square. What was there when Liberty Square first opened, Ruth, and... And we'll talk about how that's changed over the years. So in the building, kind of not exactly directly across from Hall of Presidents, but it's a little bit kind of diagonal. There was three different shops. It was Mademoiselle Lafayette's Perfumery. Sound familiar, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> there was a silversmith shop, which was also from Johnny Tremaine. Right, because Johnny Tremaine worked in a silversmith. Right. And... Old World Antiques. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? <laughs> same thing as One of a Kind. Right. And it was virtually the same idea as the One of a Kind. And they had just had all that stuff on display, and it was uh, not necessarily meant to be sold, but if they sold it, so much the better. It was more about theming, creating, you know, something interesting for the guests to experience. And I know that at the time, that by the time they opened the perfumery in Liberty Square, I don't know what was going on when it opened in New Orleans Square, so that's why I didn't bring it up. But at this point, in 71, when that opened, there were only five places in the United States where you could have your perfume designed for you in a shop. And the one of them was the one in Disneyland, mm -hmm. so... There were only three others that weren't Disney in the entire country. 
So that was a very unique experience. Mm. So today, this is the ye old Christmas shop. Yeah. So the entire thing is just one Christmas shop. Yeah, it's all separated into sections, but it's basically all the same stuff right. that you can buy basically at uh, Disney Springs or anywhere else on Disney property. Right. There's nothing unique to it at all. Right. I do know that there was a... We haven't got into too much discussion about other attractions, but there was a store off to the side, kind of close to Haunted Mansion, and it was called Keelboat Hat Shop. Yeah, right. That was because the keelboat landing was right near there. The Mike Fink keelboats, again, a kind of mishmash of the theming going on there, because Mike Fink was in the 1800s, not the 1700s, but that's where the landing for the Mike Fink keelboats was. I actually remember going on the Mike Finkiel boats from that is kind of a covered building where you kind of went down towards the water like it was a ramp inside it was kind of an interesting little structure there the the building's still there it's just there's no attraction there anymore and then going further down the other direction there was a restaurant there Ruth what was that the restaurant was called the Liberty Tree Tavern right and it was, uh, I've never eaten there, but it's its one of the, the nicer restaurants in the Magic Kingdom. It's, you know, a, one of the fancy places. But it's basically just traditional New England kind of Thanksgiving kind of fare going on. And everything's extensively decorated, so it looks like an old inn from the, um, you know, the colonial period. And it's, you know, got big fireplaces and brick walls and different, you know, kettles hanging from the ceiling and, you know, just all that theming of that time period and delicious, authentic American food. All the waiters and waitresses dress, you know, accordingly. The men are wearing the knickers and everything, you know. (laughs) It's all from that time period. And then a little further down from there is the Diamond Horseshoe. Mm where you can grab a hamburger, I guess. Nowadays, they don't put on any live shows there anymore, but at one time, it was basically an exact clone of what they were doing at Disneyland, where they would have the dance hall girls doing the can-can, and, uh, you know, they didn't have the same actors, obviously, as Disneyland did, but it was basically the same show. Mm -hmm. And during the course of it, some of the people from the Disneyland show would travel cross-country and make special appearances at the Walt Disney. I know Wally Bogue had done that a few times. So there's a bit of history to that building because Wally Bogue graced the stage there. <laughs> but then turning our, the, around and going back again, we find the what, what we had mentioned, the dock for what they call the, the Liberty Bell riverboat. And it looks kind of like a colonial structure. It's basically situated in the exact same place that it would be in Disneyland, but instead of looking more New Orleans or riverboat themed, it looks more like a colonial thing. It's just very confused. (laughs) It's not in the right place. They should have built that in Frontierland, if anywhere. There's no reason why they couldn't have put the dock there instead. But that being said, originally... There were two steamboats, the Richard F. Irvine 
and the Admiral Joe Fowler. Now, Joe Fowler was actually the person who head up all the construction at Disneyland when it was being built. And he was kind of in charge of the building of the riverboat in Disneyland. And you'll notice uh, in Disneyland, they have a little area called Fowler's Harbor. And that was an area he insisted on Walt including so they could have a dry dock for maintaining the boats. Walt was reluctant on doing that. But Joe Fowler kind of said, you have no choice because otherwise you're gonna, <laughs> you won't have a way to maintain your boats. So Walt reluctantly gave in, and for a while he thought it was such an ugly area in his park, he called it Joe's Ditch. <laughs> but after a while they decorated it really pretty and added buildings and trees and everything, and it actually became a very beautiful little spot. Mm -hmm. And he rechristened it Fowler's Harbor, and it's still there to this day. So that's the very same Fowler, Admiral Joe Fowler, because he had been an admiral in the Navy. So they actually named that boat after him. That boat had, it looked almost identical to the Mark Twain. It had two smokestacks, and um, basically they just kind of replicated what they had done there. But the Richard F. Irvine was a little bit of a different design, and it only had one smokestack in the center, and it was a little bit smaller. They had an incident with the Joe Fowler at one point. If you look at... The Rivers of America has this big metal bridge that the train goes over at one point. Well, that bridge could lift up and down. And their original thinking on this, believe it or not, if you can imagine was to have the riverboats leave the Rivers of America and go around the corner through that little gap there where the bridge is and float also around, you know, in front of the Magic Kingdom huh. and have, like, after-hours booze cruises, basically, <laughs> on these big steamboats. Oh, Walt would not have liked that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this was outside of the park, right. so I guess that was their justification. So when they were trying to do that, they ended up having a big accident with the with Admiral Joe Fowler, and they just ended up scrapping the boat. So that's why today there's only one steamboat, and it is the one with the one smokestack. And it used to be called the Richard Irvine, and now it's been renamed the Liberty Bell. But my thing is that when I'm in Disney World at the Magic Kingdom, I miss that two smokestack mm -hmm. steamboat. The Liberty Bell is just not as glorious yeah. as the Disneyland one, and it's always been a disappointment for me to not have the actual steamboat that I would like to see going around the river. But if you look at some of the older pictures of Disney World, you'll see the two smokestacks. That explains why there used to be... <laughs> Lot, there's a lot of mystery in that because it's like, how come it only has one smokestack when it used to have two? Well, it wasn't the same <laughs> steamboat. It was a different one. The reason they had two steamboats is because Disneyland had two big boats, but one of them was the Columbia, which was a sailing ship. And my question is, why wouldn't you build the Columbia For this to area. go through Liberty yeah. Square? I mean, the theming would have been excellent. Yes, it's perfect. So I don't, that always bothers me too, that there's no Columbia, because mm -hmm. to see that while you're in Liberty Square would have just been wonderful. Yeah. 
However, that brings us to our next subject. They do have a restaurant theme to the Columbia, <laughs> even though there's no Columbia there. And that's called the Columbia Harbor House, and it's a fast food place. It's pretty popular because it has some things that are not typical of the average mm -hmm. fast food place. They have a lot of seafood stuff like lobster rolls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And chowder bowls, you know, bread chowder bowls and stuff like that. That are more in keeping with the seafood theme. It's got a little bit more of a not your average fast food stuff. We skipped over another place you can get something to eat in Liberty Square, back around the corner past uh, the Hall of Presidents, and that's called Sleepy Hollow Refreshments. And they have something there that's in recent years become very popular, and those are those waffle sandwiches, mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. or their roll-ups or something like that, and that's lately. I mean, they didn't have those when I went there the last right. time. But that's become a favorite among the guests. Yeah, they have, like, lately. chicken and waffles, and then, like different items that yeah. they put inside of a waffle and you eat it kind of like a taco. Yeah, <laughs> and that the name of the, that establishment is named after uh, Sleepy Hollow, which was in Washington Irving's story of Ichabod Crane, which of course Disney turned into a cartoon, a classic cartoon in 1949. So that's kind of paying homage to that as well. And believe it or not, at one time, they had actually considered putting in a Ichabod uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow themed dark ride in Fantasyland, not in Liberty Square, mm. where Mr. Toad ended up going. Mm. They had considered doing a Ichabod Crane chase from the Headless Horseman dark ride. That would have been awesome. Yeah. But why would you put it right, there? Right, not when in you Fantasy have Land. Square yeah. right next door. Yeah, that doesn't make right. any sense. So that brings us to the last thing we're going to talk about tonight, and that would be Liberty Square's version of the Haunted Mansion and some of the things surrounding that, which we'll mention. So, unlike the Disneyland version, the Disney World version is more in keeping with the theming of Liberty Square instead of an old southern plantation next to New Orleans Square. So the design of this facade is based on the Hudson River Valley old, you know, New Amsterdam type New York era of the 1600s. And it kind of looks more like a gothic castle in a sense than the Disneyland version, and it really does fit right in perfectly with the overall aesthetic of Liberty Square. And it's hard for me, really, to decide which facade I like better. I like Disneyland's because it's just a beautiful building and I have such nostalgic feeling towards that attraction, and that's the one I grew up with. But the Liberty Square version looks a lot more like a haunted mansion mm -hmm. than the Disneyland one. Right. And they did that cleverly in such a way where they didn't have to make the building look run down. Right. It's just the nature of the architecture itself lends it to being a haunted mansion. Um, you know, all the landscaping is all nice and pristine, just like Walt wants. So I think they got around that whole thing, despite Walt, by building a building that really looks like a haunted mansion. One major difference with the Haunted Mansion in Liberty Square is it doesn't go underground. 
The Disneyland version by design had to go underground because it had to bring guests under the train tracks into a bigger show building that would not have fit inside the park. So by necessity, they designed that whole elevator scene, the, the stretch room, which brings you underground. When you're walking through that hallway that leads to the doom buggies, you're actually walking under the train tracks into the big show building on the other side of the train tracks, and then that's when you get on the doom buggies. But in the Disney World version, they had what Walt called the blessing of size. <laughs> so they were able to build the train well outside of the building of the Haunted Mansion. And they also, because of just the fact that, well, they built the Utilidors under the Haunted Mansion, and the Haunted Mansion and all of the Magic Kingdoms actually is on the second story, and the Utilidors are on the first story. They didn't build the Utilidors underground. That's why they're not called tunnels. They're called Utilidors. Because to be considered a tunnel, it has to be underground. So technically, it isn't a tunnel. The, because of the water table issue in Florida, they couldn't build these things underground. They had to build everything above ground. So the Haunted Mansion is actually on the second floor, which is interesting. Why didn't you just bring people down to the first floor then if it was already on the second floor? Well, because the Utilidors are under it. So you can't go down there either. There's something else under it. So the elevator in the Haunted Mansion in Florida doesn't move. Just the ceiling goes up. <laughs> Instead of the ceiling staying where it is and then you going down like you do in Disneyland, you stay where you are and the ceiling goes up. And the only reason they did that is it was just so popular in Disneyland, that scene, that they had to include it in the Florida version, even though it wasn't necessary. It was just people expected it. They actually built all of the props and everything for the Disney World version when the Disneyland version was being built. They duplicated every piece of that attraction because they were already in the planning stages of Disney World and they knew that this was going to be included in it. It was already a foregone conclusion. So this attraction was actually completed well before the park opened. I think it, it was completed in April. Of 71? of 71 and nobody even wrote it until October because the park wasn't open for until October. Mm -hmm. I guess the the people who working there could enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the complete opposite but, of the Disneyland version. <laughs> I know cuz they built the building and then it sat there empty for years. <laughs> so, Ruth, that little uh place you mentioned where they they sold Mike Fink hats and stuff. That eventually became something else, and it's a very popular little spot today. What is that known as today? It's called Memento Mori. Right. Which actually means in Latin, remember that you will die. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's also kind of a thing back when it's kind of a morbid thing, but <laughs> it's Haunted Mansion related, so of course it's morbid. This is something that people would do with their loved ones when, when they had passed away back um, when photography was kind of a new thing. To have a family portrait done was very, very expensive. So you would really only do it once in a life. It was like a once in a lifetime situation. And you, you didn't have a camera to just take pictures of people all the time, in other words. 
you would go to a studio and you would have a one-time session and that would be your picture and the only way to remember somebody in photography forever so if someone if a loved one had passed away and you had not yet had your family portrait done before you would bury them you would schedule right away your family portrait so you could include the dead person in the portrait <laughs> and they would actually prop up the person and put clothes on them and dress them up and and you know make them look like they're still alive and take their picture with the with the family hmm. because otherwise that person would be gone forever and you'd never have a photograph of them so these these pictures that people would take of dead relatives were known as memento mori and that's kind of where Disney came up with that name. Hmm. So it's kind of creepy. Yeah, that is really creepy. <laughs> and, and they sell basically the same kind of stuff they sell at the Baton Rouge there. But a little higher end, yeah. they do have a lot of really nice haunted mansions. Like collectibles. Exclusive yeah. collectibles mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. But they also have some of that Nightmare Before Christmas mm-hmm. junk too. They do. But also, there's a little cart outside the haunted mansion which is worth mentioning and uh it's actually based on something that a famous imagineer raleigh crump had designed he designed a little gypsy cart when he was thinking of ideas for his original uh, museum of the weird concept and they sort of based this little wagon outside the haunted mansion on his design to a degree not as crazy as what he came up with but so this cart also had an interesting name. It was called Madame Leota's Gypsy Cart, which is named after the character inside the Haunted Mansion. That's the head inside the crystal ball, which uh, is voiced by Eleanor Audley, the voice of Maleficent and the evil stepmother, of course. And uh, what's interesting about the, the way they came up with the name of Leota is the Imagineer who you see, it's not Eleanor Audley's face that you see, you actually see an, a female Imagineer whose name was Leota. Leota Toons. Leo, uh, she has the perfect haunted yes. <laughs> mansion name, Leota Toons. <laughs> I mean, that's so bizarre to me that she had right, that perfect I know. name. <laughs> so that's actually her face that you're seeing. It's not her voice, but it's her face. And I can't imagine anybody, I mean, when I saw that movie of the Haunted Mansion, it was like, when they showed the Madame Leota, it was like, that's not Madame Leota, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's only, it's only Leota Tombs can be Madame Leota. But she's also the, they have the little Leota when you're mm-hmm. leaving the attraction. And she's that little figure that stands and says, hurry back, hurry back. Mm-hmm. That's also the real Leota Toombs face that you're seeing. So they named that cart after the character of Madame Leota, and they just sold basic trinkets and things there. So that's basically our little tour and history lessons behind the two squares in Disneyland, told to you by two squares. (laughs) (laughs) D-squares. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, everybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 89 of Jiminy Crickets, our little tours of New Orleans Square and Liberty Square. Ruth, where can everybody find you on the web? Well, I'm the co-host of a podcast along with my daughter where we watch and then discuss the Disney made-for-TV movies from the 80s called the Disney Sunday Movie Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook, and our website is DisneySundayMoviePodcast.com. And I'm on Facebook, I'm Ruthie Brown. You can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73, on Facebook under the name Chris Linden, that's L-Y-N-D-O-N, as in Lyndon Johnson. That was my little Hall of Presidents <laughs> You can find my website at DisneyChris.com, home of the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour. I also have a YouTube channel called DisneyChris.com. It's spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. I give updates on my progress of the ongoing project of the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour which is over 1,500 audio tracks of Disney magic and growing. And Ruth, where can everybody find Jiminy Crickets on the web? You can find all of our past shows on our website at jcricketpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes at Jiminy Crickets, that's with an exclamation point, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. You can also email us your comments or questions at jiminycricketspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and also join our Jiminy Crickets podcast Facebook group. Absolutely. And I just want to once again thank Concy Ears Travel Planners for being the official travel planners of the Jiminy Crickets podcast. And Ruth, do you have any final words this week? Yes. Just like Walt, we are keeping history alive, specifically Disney history. Thanks for listening. And always let your conscience be your guide. Your heart is in your dream